Hello and welcome to Queering Desi. I'm your host, Priya. As a South Asian queer non-binary person, I have learned a lot on my journey of self-acceptance and building community. So in each episode, I will bring you a slice of South Asian LGBTQ life with a guest who exemplifies what it means to be who you are and to live your truth. I like to create a safe and open discussion with our guests and listeners. So if the topics on this podcast are controversial, please know these opinions are of the guest and host, and we don't mean any offense. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Hi, everyone. On this week's episode of Queering Daisy, we wanted to delve further into how the arts have been affected by this pandemic, and one very unique fund that has been started for South Asian artists in the U.S. We talked to three folks, Pumi Patel, who is an artist, activist, and dancer, Zulfikar Ali Bhutto, a visual artist, performer, and curator, and Ashok Sinha, a board member of the India Center Foundation, which has started the South Asian Arts Resiliency Fund. Bhumi and Zulfikar talk about their work, as well as how this crisis has affected them, while Ashok adds perspective on why this fund is important. Later, all three weigh in on how we can support the arts during these difficult times. We hope you enjoy this candid conversation with these wonderful queer folks. And for more information on this fund, as well as other resources for our communities, please visit our website at queeringdesi.com. So without much further ado, here's our panel. So welcome to Queering Desi. Uh, this week, I'm very excited to have a phenomenal panel of guests to talk about South Asian arts during this pandemic and, and ways that we can support each other during this time. I will allow our guests to introduce themselves. So first, Ashok, can we start with you? Sure. My name is Ashok Sinha. I am on the board of the India, India Center Foundation, uh, and my preferred pronouns are he, him. Thank you. And Bumi? My name is Bumi Patel. I am an artist and an arts worker based in the San Francisco Bay Area, and I use she, her, or they, them pronouns. Thank you. And Zulfikar? My name is Zulfikar Ali Bhutto. Um, my pronouns are he, him, occasionally she, her, and I'm sure we'll get into that later. I am a visual artist, performance artist, and curator based in San Francisco uh, in the Bay Area. Thank you for having me here. Yeah, thank you all. Um, my name is Priya and I go by they or she. I just want to start with like an open conversation about what's happening right now. How are all of you coping? Um, how are you doing? What has the effect kind of been on you guys? Are you watching trash TV like the rest of us? Like, can you talk a little bit about just the pandemic and the crisis going on? Ashok, we'll start with you. Yeah, sure. Thanks. So, um, you know, it's, a, it's crazy times. My partner and I are lucky enough to have a second house outside of New York City in the Hudson Valley. So shortly after the pandemic started, um, we moved up here full time. So we've been here for about five or six weeks. So it's bittersweet in the sense that, you know, we're spending time in nature. We're surrounded by beautiful trees and, you know, we have space around us, which is amazing. New York City is my first or second love. And I definitely miss being in New York and, you know, and feeling tremendous both guilt and also sadness about what's happening there and, and, and missing being there. But as I've said, I've said this a couple times before, like it's, I sort of feel like I'm part of the experience has been amazing because I'm able to be here. I'm working uh, during the day. I'm hanging out here at night and that's all amazing. But then around me, I'm sort of aware of kind of the really crazy times we're in and that, and that can be quite sobering. So I would say it's both great times and it's also kind of scary times for me. 
Yeah, of course. That's definitely relatable. Um, Bumi, how about yourself? I'm doing relatively okay today. You know, every day is, uh, I wake up in the morning and I don't feel like P. Diddy. Um, I just <laughs> have to see how it's going. Um, I'm feeling really grateful that I have a home where I can shelter in place. Um, I'm feeling really grateful that my partner and I live alone, particularly here in the Bay Area where housing is it's a commodity in a way that it should not be a commodity. And I feel really grateful to be healthy and to have access to food when I go to the grocery store and to have access to like make masks. I have a sewing machine, so I've been making masks. I think over the last four or five weeks that we've been in this shelter in place, I've become a little bit more domestic. That's the word I've been using. I don't know if it's the right word, <laughs> but I've just been like taking the time to cook meals and eating while sitting down and not in my car, driving from one gig to another, taking my dog on really long walks. I've read like 15 books so far. I just feel really grateful and am trying to figure out the way to focus on what is nourishing me, the things that I am able to control, like how I spend my time, because there's so much that's out of my control right now. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we've had conversations on the podcast before about just this feeling of the pressure almost of being productive too, right? Mm -hmm. Like you mentioned books and stuff. Like I find it hard personally for me to like calm my mind or slow down enough sometimes or to sober up from kind of what's happening enough mm -hmm. to just enjoy some of those things. So I'm glad to hear that like that, that works for people. And I know like this time and this pressure sometimes to be like to do things or accomplish things can be a lot as well. Yeah. I feel like I've gone the opposite route Yeah, where I'm like, I'm not doing anything yeah. because there's a pandemic. Yeah. No, I love that. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> Zulfikar, how about yourself? How, how have you been doing with everything? Yeah, I mean, similar to what Bumi was saying, and it's been a sort of each day is a sort of new day. And I, I, when this all started, I think I was a little too ready for everything to be canceled, perhaps. It was an, just on a sort of professional work level, it was an overwhelming time and in a good way and uh, in a way that I had kind of set myself up for and then everything was canceled and the lack of deadlines was just amazing. And I still love to make work and it's not about, you know, a, a sort of drive to be productive. That's just my, it's also a way I distract myself, you know, mm -hmm. because the kind of work that I do is, it takes up a lot of time. It takes up a lot of space. But then sometimes I think some the space to create sometimes makes me feel a little frazzled, you know, and I'm not quite sure what to start on, what to finish, what to complete. And it, and it becomes this interesting sort of like toss up of like, okay, what weird and creative thing am I going to do today? Or in fact, am I just not feeling my best self today? And am I just going to sit in bed and, you know, stare at the lamp, which has happened. <laughs> and I try and allow that to happen. My job is actually still happening. I work for an organization called Sky Watchers, and we work in the Tenderloin district of San Francisco. If you're from the Bay Area, the Tenderloin is just jumps at you with the imagery, but it's it's a part of downtown that is very, very low income. And there are many SROs, which are single room occupancy buildings, which are for low income people. They're privately owned, but they're also subsidized. It's a kind of weird, complicated in-between mm -hmm. ground. Um, and we... Before the pandemic, we did groups in these buildings and 
like art groups, art advocacy groups to talk about homelessness and poverty in San Francisco. And of course, we couldn't really do that anymore because we put ourselves at risk and we're putting the people who we uh, work with at risk. So everything kind of shifted online. And right now I'm putting, I'm also making masks as well. So there is some structure to my day and work is happening. Mm -hmm. And there is, and it's interesting as people adjust more and more to this life of Zoom more and more things I'm noticing are starting to pick back up and people are wanting to start picking back up conversations and deadlines. And, and I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I thought this was postponed indefinitely. <laughs> what are you making me do? And alongside that, I've also been distracting myself with what's been happening in Pakistan and the various forms of mutual aid that are happening there. I mean, Pakistan went under lockdown quite a while before the United States did. So and over there, the economy is based off of people who earn daily wages, like every, you know, daily laborers who earn daily wages, similar to India. So it's really a crisis to go under lockdown. People are scared they're going to die of hunger before they die of, of coronavirus. So, you know, there's so much in the world to think about. And then on a personal level, just trying to keep my mind busy, but also allow myself moments of, of rest and pause yeah, I love that. I love the ability of being able to check in with yourself. You and Boomi both said that of of checking with yourself and treating each day as, as its own. I think that's a great piece of advice that I definitely will take away. I'll move to some general questions. I want to learn mo- more about each of you. I'll start with you, Ashok. Can you tell us a little bit about your journey? You mentioned ICF. Can you talk a little bit about ICF and how arts has played a role in your life? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I'm conscious of the fact that I'm probably the least interesting of your three panelists, so I'll be quick. <laughs> Um, (laughs) That's not true. I actually, I work in corporate America now. I work at a large uh, entertainment and media company doing corporate communications. But my background is actually in the arts. I have both undergraduate and graduate degrees in theater. uh, And I moved to New York in the late 90s to really be an actor and a director. And I did work in that space for about a good 10 years, really focusing on sort of work that touched my identities, both as a South Asian person and as a queer person. I did that for a while. And as I like to say, I had a love affair with the theater, but the theater didn't really love me back. <laughs> so at some point, about 15 years ago, I made I made a switch to remaining within the entertainment uh, industry, which was important to me, but shifting the focus and moving behind the camera, if you will, instead of in front of it. And the Indian Center really came about because a group of friends who I knew in New York we all shared a vision of wanting to create an organization that would help build a stronger cultural connection um, between the Indian subcontinent and the U.S. And we we sort of felt that there was a vacuum of an organization that would, was really sort of focusing on the arts and culture that could do that at the time. So we founded the India Center about three years ago, and most of our focus has really been on arts programming. So we've been doing a fair amount of arts programming over the past three years across all disciplines, so visual art, dance, music. And it's just been, you know, it's been an amazing experience. It's kept me connected to the arts. So even though my day job is no longer as artistic, my focus at the India Center really is sort of within sort of the arts realm. And that's sort of, that's who India Center is. And, and you know, that's sort of who I am in a nutshell. I love India Center and what y'all are doing. Can you just talk a little bit about the diversity within that, right? We always talk about South Asia as this monolithic kind of, how how do you guys kind of make that effort to make sure that you're representing people in their own voices and not trying to like, you know, but not being Indocentric or Hindu-centric or cis-centric or heterocentric, you know, all yeah. of the, the categories. Like, can you talk a little bit about those efforts too? 
Sure. Yeah, I think that's a great question. I think, you know, we struggled a bit when we were founding India Center about whether to call it India Center or make it more sort of South Asia focused. And the reason we chose to be India Center is in part because of the backgrounds of the board members. So all of us are, you know, originally come from or our families come from India. And so we made the decision to really focus on India because it just felt a little bit more sort of doable for us, for lack of a better term. I will say that the board, and this has been really important to all of us, the board is very diverse. So we are made up of gay and straight people, Hindus, Muslims. We have a Christian board member. Um, so that was really important. And I will say, if you look at the work that we've done over the past three years, it has been as diverse and across the spectrum as India is itself. And that's been something that's been a real priority for us. I love to hear that. I, I'm glad to see the efforts. And, and when organizations are kind of even just self-aware to say, like, that's something we think about or that's something we're making efforts towards, I think that really matters. So I'm glad to hear that. Um, Bhumi, for you, dance is kind of like primary like medium for you. Can you talk a little bit about your earliest memory of dance and like your relationship with dance? And of course, with so many other art forms that you work with, how dance and those art forms kind of enable you to tell stories that you want to tell or that aren't often told? My earliest memory of dance is going to Garba at the temple when I was a kid um, with my mom and my two older sisters. And that sort of goes hand in hand with my upbringing of, uh, <laughs> that involved a lot of Bollywood films. And so getting dressed up for Gerba felt like I was going to be in my own Bollywood film because we were going to go into this big hall and everyone was going to be dressed up and they were all going to be doing the same dance. All we needed was like Hrithik Roshan singing a song. That was all we were missing. <laughs> um, yeah. And so that was, that's kind of like my early memory of dance. And I always loved doing that. And then when I was in high school, I was involved in musical theater in my high school. And every time there was a dance number, I was like, this is what I want to do. This is the part of the play I want to be a part of. Um, and so then I started taking uh, ballet classes and musical theater classes and tap and jazz and modern while I was in high school. And I loved it. I thought it was so much fun. You know, I was 15 years old and lyrical dance where you get to like emote and express is everything <laughs> that is needed for like 15 year old emotional expression. But going back to Garba, my family isn't particularly religious, but it felt like these events were more of a way to express gratitude. Like the way it was explained to me when I was a kid was that we go and we do this thing and it's a way of saying thank you for the blessings in our life, which is why I, I feel like I still have like a spiritual connection. I never felt like religion was telling me how to live my life or that religion was not approving of how I was living my life. And so this idea that like you could use the body to express gratitude for what you have and who you are and what is available to you um, has really carried through in my work. I'm also really informed by my interest in kinesthetic grief processing, the way that we use the body to work through traumatic feelings of grief and how important that is. And again, that ties back to like my South Asian-ness and talking to my parents and my grandparents and hearing from them like the physical responses that happen in our communities as a way of dealing with grief. 
So that comes into my my movement practice. And then I also, I'm not a yoga teacher. I'm a yoga enthusiast. I do a lot of yoga, (laughs) but I've never um, gone through the process of teaching. And I think that that's another thing that I bring into my work in terms of using all of that to enable myself or my, the artists that I work with to tell our individual stories. I feel like all of that background has moved me in a direction of wanting to prioritize individuals in their own identities instead of asking people to play the representation of their identity. I think it's really important to see people for who they are and not as a singular representation of whatever identity they embody. And because there are ways that I have privilege and there are ways that I experience oppression, it feels even more important to work with people who come from different places who have historically not been seen or witnessed or heard through a lens of seeing that individual telling their individual story instead of that individual telling a story for all of the people who are like them. I love both your point about the the trauma-informed kind of perspective that you take, especially intergenerationally, because I think for so many of us, um, that lineage carries forward no matter where we are in the diaspora. So I love that about, about what you said. But I also love like the latter part of what you were saying. I think it can be hard at times to find audiences for that, I think, or places or platforms or, or organizations that open that space, right? If you are in a, an oppressed identity, to find spaces or to find platforms for your voice or to tell your own stories can be really difficult. So sometimes the onus falls on us within those marginalized identities to to kind of open that up for each other. Have you found that to be true for, for yourself and your work as well? Um, sometimes. I think that my enthusiasm maybe about doing this work has come from being in the position of being tokenized so often. You know, look, we have one brown person in our dance company. We are definitely diverse. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Or we have one queer person in our dance company. We're diverse. Mm -hmm. And the pressure to be the brown voice or the queer voice always felt so uncomfortable and so overwhelming. It was too much. I I can't speak for all South Asian queer people. I can't do that. I can only talk about my experience. And so that sort of led me to this desire to say, like, anyone that I work with in my dance company, in classes and projects, things like that, I invite you to bring your full self and yourself as only a representation of who you are not a representation of everyone who is similar to you. Thank you. Zulfikar, I'll move to you. I'll start with the first question. Like, how has your journey kind of impacted the art you make? You alluded to earlier, kind of this um, plethora of, of mediums and things. Like, how does your journey inform the medium you use or the art that you create? Mm. I think I'm just overall a very enthusiastic person when it comes to manifesting what I have in my brain into sort of something that I can share. And like, you know, I think like Pumi said, like the enthusiasm is so critical to this whole conversation, right? Whatever the instigators are. And I think for me, I mean, I grew up in a family that was very, very political and also from different places. So my mother's Lebanese, uh, my father was Pakistani Iranian, and, you know, I was born in 
Damascus, moved to Pakistan, then, you know, spent my teenage to adult life sort of moving around other places of my of my choosing, mostly in, in the Western world. And then I always carried my places with me. And I always thought of like, you know, what did my father go through? What did my mother go through in their lives and in their journeys? And even in their meeting and in their marriage and in their having of me, you know, my father escaped in exile from Pakistan and my mother left uh, the civil war in Lebanon to find a a job in Damascus. And that's why they were both in Damascus. It was this push of uh, violence, of bloodletting, of war, of instability that had sent them on on these migratory routes. So a lot of my work is about the interconnectedness of struggle and attempting to reveal both the tension of, of difference within struggles and also the potential of similarity. Um, and I think they're both very important because, you know, whenever we collaborate with people, especially on a level of, you know, seeking creative collaboration as a form of political solidarity, we tend to just want to focus on the similarities. But the tension and difference is super important as well. I think that's a really creative space. So, and then also along with that, sort of having this history as a queer person, right? I think a lot of queer people have been pushed out of histories, you know, that quote unquote matter, you know, histories of popular resistance, histories of guerrilla warfare, histories of these things that have shaped and informed national and regional identities for centuries, if not decades or or whatever, you know, queer people are excluded from that history. They're excluded from the fight. They're excluded from the narrative, from the overall narrative. And my current project, Tomorrow We Inherit the Earth, which I'm still doing, you know, just do it. Because, <laughs> you know, I was doing it. Um, is a way of uh, reviving or placing queer histories in histories of popular resistance, right? Like, who were the queer people in, for example, the Lebanese Civil War? Who were the queer people in the Algerian Revolution? Who were the queer people in all these movements that have shaped our identities, but we were told that queerness as a subject matter was something not to be brought up or it wasn't important enough or it wasn't timely enough. It wasn't the moment for it. But actually, if we look back into history, we have been here, right? So, and for me, the best way to manifest this has been through both textile and performance. Yeah, um, you mentioned performance. I think it's a great segue. My my follow up question with you was to asking you about Faluda Islam. Can you talk a little bit about this persona and the message that she carries for you? Yeah, so Faluda is part of this overall world, which includes a lot of textile work that mimics Sufi Muslim or Shia Muslim tapestries that you often find in shrines that eulogize or heroize people, and this idea of the martyr, the shaheed is such a huge part of any place that experiences violence, right? Like, how do you valorize someone you you can no longer see and touch and say, I love you too, right? You make them a martyr, you make them a saint, you make them closer to God, because what else can you do? Mm -hmm. So for me, the tapestries mimic a lot of this sort of martyr representation, but instead I call them, instead of martyrs, I call them immortals to emphasize the life rather than the death, right? But Faluda Islam is the darker side of the project. And she is, for the most part, a zombie. And she is the resurrected martyr, right? Like she is literally the living martyr. And for me, she becomes a way to access certain voices that either feel distant or that need another kind of character persona. And and Faluda Islam is is definitely me. She's a drag queen, in case people don't know who she is. She's a drag queen and she's sassy and she's she's sort of oracle-ish. And then in her zombie persona, 
it's a little bit more of the scary drag. It's a little bit more of the less legible drag. I always have a desire to be really unlegible. Like I love it when people can't really quite get what I'm, <laughs> what I'm going for. And this lack of legibility, I think, is so freeing because to understand something is to also somewhat control it. So to sort of throw that off is, is quite nice. So Faluda Islam is this sort of weird middle character who's kind of roaming the afterlife, speaking to different ghosts. And she's also a way for me to access my father. My father was, was killed, was martyred when I was six years old um, in Karachi by police outside our home. And, you know, as a queer son with a martyred father, how do you access that memory because people always try and access it for you and they always try and present you mm -hmm. options of how to see your father but i think for queer people and i think for queer people who are born as male especially to have a male figure you have to mirror so faluda islam is in a way a mirror to him right mm -hmm. like i embody him through this queer character and i can queerly revive him and i can queerly access him and she's basically an experiment in this in in queerly reviving ancestry and she's done it in lots of different ways, some of which are really fun and some of which are really strange. Uh, and I always wonder what audiences are taking when they leave. But yeah, the experimentation of the character is something that I enjoy. Did I answer your question even? Yeah, you did. Okay. You totally did. I, I, I would love to like ask a million follow-up questions, but I will just say, like, I, for me, that legibility that you talk about really ties in with accessing the queer histories, right? Mm -hmm. Because so many of us that identify as queer and South Asian might come up across generational divides, generational questions that are like, that deem queerness or transness to be Western, right? Mm. Or to be new. So I really love this idea of accessing histories and placing us there because we're not new at all, right? But then yeah. that that really speaks to that legibility because we're not staying in the confines of a history that is told to us in a distorted way. So it's really fascinating to hear you talk about that. I'm going to switch gears just a little bit to talk more about the arts, but um, about the South Asian Arts Resiliency Fund in particular. Ashok, ICF is at the heart of this, and I would love to talk to you and hear from you about identifying the need for this at this time and like how did you guys come up with this what was the onus and what was the idea behind it i mean really it was quite simple i mean we, in the face of the pandemic you know we we spoke as a board we really wanted to figure out a way to respond as i mentioned before we've been around for about three years most of our programming has been within the arts community so we'd built connections and relationships with artists and we knew how we're aware we're all aware of how fragile living as an artist can be and it really started from a real just knee-jerk reaction to do something. You know, we were aware that there are some funds that are like ours that are targeted at sort of the more, for lack of a better term, mainstream community. But again, we were aware that, you know, artists who are, who are South Asian, there's a fragility there that I think is different and unique. Um, and we really wanted to make sure that we were able to support them. So we launched the fund. We seeded it with um, some of our own money. And the idea is that we'll give, you know, and... The other important thing that I want to point out is that we decided not to call it an emergency fund, but rather a resiliency fund, because we see this as a long-term game, right? We all, I think we all are probably aware of the fact that this is going to create sort of a long-term economic hardship for many people, but especially for artists. And so it was really important for us to sort of build something that is sustainable and, again, as I said before, in it for the long term. So the idea behind the fund is that 
It's open to um, South Asian artists from the SARC countries, so all, you know, from Afghanistan down to Sri Lanka, the Maldives, India, etc., and artists working across all disciplines. And the applications opened last week, but we see this as being something that will be rolling. So, you know, we don't, there's no end date in sight for this. We, we really want to build something that's going to be sort of sustainable and long-term. Um, and so the thing that I would say is that, you know, I would put out an appeal, sort of a two-pronged appeal. One is actually less of an appeal, but one is to say to your listeners who are artists themselves to please, you know, apply for these grants. More information is available on our website, which is theindiacenter.us. But then also we need to build the funds. So as I mentioned, we started it um, with some seed funds from ICF, but we have a very ambitious target. We want to build the fund to be about a half a million dollars. And we're far away from that at the moment. So we're asking for people to donate any amount. There's no amount that's too small. And most importantly, and, and um, Priya, this is why I, I'm so thankful to be on this show talking about this fund, also spread the word amongst your networks and let people know that we're doing this. And, you know, our hope is to ultimately build the 500,000, maybe, you know, even build beyond that, but to be able to sort of hopefully impact in a positive way those South Asian artists who have been affected by this pandemic. Yeah, I'm so glad to see something specific to our communities. And I also love that the breadth of this resiliency fund, right, that, that you're covering performing arts and film and visuals and literature. So many of these areas that in South Asian diaspora, at least still can be seen as like just not the mainstream or not like we're, we're look, really looking out for each other, I think, in this with this kind of fund, like to really target folks that maybe maybe not have been supported in the past as well, but definitely during this crisis. So I'm glad to see that. And I, I would love to hear from Bumi and Zulfikar. Um, as artists yourselves, like, how has the crisis kind of affected you and how does or how would a fund like this, Resiliency Fund, kind of help you? Like, have you lost work? Have you, How has that impacted you? And, and how would this kind of fund help you? Um, Bumi, we'll start with you. Sure. The first thing I will say is that I feel like I have come into this pandemic in a very fortunate position. And I say that because my dance company, Patel Danceworks, we had a massive home season in November. And so December, January, February was my recovery period. And so at the beginning of March, when we were just starting to hear in this country about COVID, I was already kind of like, oh, well... I'm kind of on a break a little bit. I just feel really fortunate that I didn't have like a big home season coming up that I've needed to postpone or cancel. The flip side of that is that a lot of the things that are part of the process that I've been working in have been postponed and canceled. So as an artist, I was scheduled to begin two residency programs in May, one in New York and one in the Bay um, that would go through the summer. And those are not happening anymore. They've been postponed to August. And at this point, I still feel a little bit skeptical about whether or not it is possible to continue um, doing this sort of work as soon as August. That's disappointing, but... I understand it. Like, I understand why these things are happening. As an arts worker, uh, because I, I kind of have this constellation of jobs that when you add it all up, it sort of looks like a full-time job. Um, I'm an arts administrator for two dance companies. And with both of these companies, I've seen a huge loss of income, which then in sort of a non-economics way trickles down to my hours being cut. 
And I understand there's no cash flow coming in. There can't be any cash flow going out to me. And also there isn't the work that was going to be there for me to do. Like there isn't a production for me to support. There isn't, I don't need to send out press releases. I don't need to uh, create social media campaigns. And so that that has been a challenge. I was also working as a dramaturg for a performance that was supposed to premiere this weekend, actually, tonight, when we're recording this. And that performance has been postponed. So that that's another loss of work. Um, I'm also an, an arts educator. I teach preschool all the way up to college. And my college students, I luckily still have that income, but we've totally reimagined what dance education looks like. Um, we've totally reimagined what movement looks like. For a lot of my students, they're now working full-time in essential positions, in grocery stores, at hospitals, as EMTs, as firefighters, things like that. You know, I have this modern dance class where one of the objectives at the beginning of the semester was, okay, everyone is going to learn how to do X, Y, and Z dance moves. And now it's like, let's reimagine what that looks like because it's not going to be that. So all of those things all together kind of make up the the effects of the pandemic on the work that I do. And as an artist and an arts worker at the same time, I kind of do both. Uh, I wear both hats. There's sort of like a cyclical relationship between my work as an artist and my work as an arts worker. So as an arts worker, I support artists to create, but I also view that as an opportunity to view our landscape, our artistic landscape. And I'm finding more and more that the number of people that it takes to create art is never fully seen when you have a piece of public facing art, whether it's a dance performance or an installation or a painting or a film, we never really see how many people go into that work. And so this fund in particular feels really special to me because as I've looked at all of the lists that are being published about emergency funding and pandemic funding and all of these things, it feels like this one is an opportunity to not just like put out the fires that are happening right now, but to create like a long-term way to find our resilience within our community and to keep doing the work that is necessary for both art artists and arts workers. And I filled out the application for the fund and writing the application gave me such a renewed sense of excitement about the work that I'm doing that I hadn't felt in several weeks because it just became this sort of like a game of like, oh, where's my income coming from? Where is it going? Okay, so all the, my classes are canceled. This is canceled. I'm not getting income from here. What do I do? And then I sat down to write this application and it was like, oh, this is to support a project that I want to do that I can use this time during a pandemic to do actual tangible things and get them done and be supported financially through my art making. Yeah, no, that feels huge. I mean, that feel that just to wrap our heads around that impact is is really helpful. Rima, you're the Bonnie to my Buri. What? That sounds like something that should be on a t-shirt. It is. From Bakwas Apparel. 
Have you ever wished you had a brand that embraced your multicultural identity, deconstructed stigmas, and helped you pursue your passions? Oh yeah, for sure. Well, Bookloss is a brand motivated by people who are doing what makes them happy, and they understand what it means to be who you are, and what it takes to be true to yourself. Something we believe in deeply here at Queering Desi. Aww, PR. Yeah, they have that on a t-shirt too. Inspired by this generation of go-getters, innovators, disruptors, and dreamers, Bookloss wants you to join the movement and proudly wear your identity for the world to see. Check out their premium South Asian designs on their website, www.bookwasapparel.com, and use the code ARTS15 for an exclusive 15% discount just for you, our listeners. Join the movement. Be Bookwas. And baby, you're the pony to my puri too. <laughs> okay, back to the show. Um, Zulfikar, for yourself, how has this affected you and, and how can a fund like this help you particularly? I mean, I think one of the first communities to jump on the idea of, of mutual aid and was the arts community, because we knew that even though people depend on arts for introspection, for happiness, for entertainment, for distraction, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, we knew that I think we would be the first to be left behind or some of the first to be left behind. Of course, we have to think about the workers as well who are still toiling and not being considered and not having their wages raised, et cetera. Um, but artists knew that we had to support each other because support from outside would have been hard to find, which I think says a lot about maybe how we see arts institutions overall and in this time especially. But um, And I think a fund like this is, is really crucial, especially to multimedia artists who depend, and especially performance artists who depend on audience, right? Who depend on... Yeah, on people showing up and that that's what all the grants, you know, when you when organizations apply for grants, that's what they ask for, et cetera, et cetera. So I think, you know, for me, I remember within the first, like, I don't know, before San Francisco even went into lockdown, there was a performance I was gonna do in, in Morocco and I was very excited and I applied for the visa because us Pakistanis need to get the visas. And I got the visa and then they were like, sorry, we're canceling everything. <laughs> <laughs> and of course it was it was devastating not to be able to travel but also it revealed sort of the privilege of travel as well to me and and how how I sort of took it for granted and also for everyone involved I mean that was probably a month's worth of of salary for everybody and then the knock on effects started to happen right so then all these local smaller gigs in in the bay area that I was going to do all got canceled and then so on the performance side you know on the sort of like okay this is the money I'm going to get that was you know, a good three months of income gone within a, a few days, right? And then on top of that, the exhibitions that get canceled and postponed, that's a lot of other potential income and honorariums and everything else that gets canceled. So, and for me, I feel very lucky that I still have a part-time job. I still have a job that pays me. I still have a job that I can, I can see as reliable. And I had some cushion before all of this started as well. But for many, many artists in the Bay Area, especially people who depended on performance work, as I think Bumi and I can testify to, like this was devastating. But what's been amazing is how quick people have been to respond to this you know, current contemporary economic crisis, but also in, in the long term, right? So there are people who the rolling, rolling benefits, and I think especially for South Asian artists, there's our work can be so specific to our context and to our experiences and to how we've experienced the world and how, especially in the diaspora, how we've experienced this particular world, either multi-generationally or in a sort of first-generation way. And I think 
a fund such as this, I think, sets up a sort of primary base level of understanding that maybe another more general fund may not have. And I think it, what it does is that it tells South Asian, especially queer South Asian artists, that they're not alone, that there is someone to guide them, that there is someone to support their work. It's a huge safety net in, in a capitalist system like the United States where there are absolutely <laughs> no safety nets. <laughs> yes. Yeah, incredible. I was going to say, when you mentioned long-term, I, I thought about that because it's it's calling to question so many systems, right, that are in place here um, that already crippled so many marginalized communities and how this is kind of causing a little bit of a reckoning for that. So I'm glad you mentioned that. I have a few, a couple of follow-ups for all of you about how else can we, um, we being the community and all our identities, continue to support you particularly or the arts in general during this time? And along with that, if you can add any advice you have to budding queer South Asian artists, both during this time who are trying to envision a future or just in general who who would love to be where you are or, or to see a monicum of success, any advice that you have? So, so a double-barreled question there, but we'll start with you, Ashok, if you have any words for that. Allow the, the artists to talk, to give artists advice. The thing I will say is, uh, I'll just repeat the call that I made at the beginning of this, um, which is I invite artists, South Asian artists from all backgrounds to really apply for our fund and to you know look for our support. We want to help you. We want to support you. We want to be there for you. And similarly, I would put out a similar call to you know people who might have some means to just donate to the cause because we are in it. We're going to support it for the long run, but we need your help and your support in order to make it happen. So I would I would just leave it at that. Thank you. Um, Bumi, for you, uh, how else can we support you or the arts and any words of advice? Yeah, um, I think that supporting artists who are making and creating is incredibly important. And as an artist myself, the amount of sort of like emotional support that I've seen in the community is is really touching. The thing that I want to say and reiterate is to not forget about arts workers. As an artist, I'm here, I'm trying to figure out the ways to continue to make art and to envision a future where performances can happen again. And I keep thinking about my role as an arts worker in all of that. And our technicians, our agents, our producers, our administrators also need our support. Uh, particularly because so much of that work is not like employee-based. So in a lot of states, there is no opportunity for unemployment at this point. Um, If you're a gig worker as a stage manager or a technician for live performance, you lose out on your gig and you also lose out on opportunity to get any of these services that are being offered federally anyway. So That would be my ask to remember all of the people that make art happen. And then when we have shows again, please come to them. Uh, (laughs) When we're allowed to gather together again, please come out. Please come support. It means so much to see folks in our community show up. And it will mean even more to have folks show up after we have gone through all of this far apart physically but together in the same mission to see the arts happen live again. In terms of advice, I think the the few pieces of advice that I would want to impart um, to other maybe younger, maybe not queer South Asian artists and creatives, be kind to yourself. We all need to be kind to ourselves and allow yourself to be drawn towards whatever nourishes you. You are not a cog in a 
capitalist machine and you are allowed to not be productive. I very much believe that we will rebuild the arts landscape out of all of this. And then I'll just say, I can only speak for myself, but if there is anyone out there who is a queer and South Asian artist or creative person or arts worker, and you are looking for community support, you can always reach out to me. You can slide into my DMs. You can send me a message through my website. I am here for community gathering through social distancing. Thank you, Rumi. That's really important to hear. So thank you for offering yeah. that. Zulfikar, for you, uh, how can we support the arts and any advice that you might have? I think emotional support is pretty underrated. I am personally an introvert. And so when this all started happening, I was like, all right, shut the door. But then I did have a moment where I was like, oh my goodness, I'm missing people. I am craving connection. So, you know, definitely think of your artist friends and what they might be going through uh, is one very, very small way to support. I think materially and financially speaking, donating to efforts like this and others around the country and around the world are really, really important. And I think for me, this is a really critical time to think about how can artists be connected to other issues? You know, I think we imagine artists as sort of isolated creative people making, right? Or making, doing, whatever. But we, we are inspired by our world around us. And I think the connectivity between us and other issues is really important. And I'm just going to slide this into the conversation. This is an issue that's been really important for me is the, is the decarceration movement, which is the effort to dismantle prisons in the United States and across the world. Um, there have been many examples around the world of prisons being practically emptied of their prison population because this disease is affecting these spaces a lot more where people do not have access to hygiene and sanitation and conditions are overcrowded. There are a lot of efforts in Pakistan to decarcerate and they keep getting blocked by various different levels of court and then they keep opening and they keep being blocked again. So and then here in the United States, in San Francisco, there's an effort to shut down 850 Bryant Street, which is a prison in downtown that should have been shut down a long time ago. So I think my advice to artists is that in this time when you don't feel like you can make work, if you're feeling depressed, if you're grieving, do look at the world uh, that's happening around you. And, and if there's other causes that you feel that you can put your energies to that may not look creative in the short run, but will have, inshallah, a long-term effect on somebody else's life. I think that's really, really important to look at as well. And as Bumi said as well, when all of this is, is over, inshallah, find ways that you can support your friends through your physical presence, through your advocacy, and through any, any other kind of genuine heartfelt support. That would probably be my advice. Yeah, thank you. I mean, historically, this community is queer South Asians. We we rely so much on chosen family and community. Um, so I almost feel like in a weird way, we were built for this, right? We, we rely on each other, but we also weren't built for the isolating aspect of that. So it's interesting to see that kind of in tandem of, of we have these support systems, but we also are still isolated. And so how do we grapple with that? So I'm, I'm glad that you to hear you guys mention some of that. To wrap up, after such a wonderful and deep conversation, I want to do a couple of fun things. I want to just ask you all um, a couple of fun questions. I'm going to pick some from the ones I had picked out. So if you can each just tell me like a comfort food or a comfort thing that you're you're consuming or surrounding yourself with at this time. And what is the first thing you want to do uh, once we're all able to go outside again? Ashok, I can start with you. 
My comfort food is a um, is a dirty martini uh, every evening. It's I, it's the first. It's the thing Delicious. I look forward to the moment I wake up until it happens in the evening. Um, and once this is over, I want to go back to. I want to be able to travel again. I love to travel, and that's the thing I'm looking the most forward to. Where is the first place you want to go? I want to go to India. I'd, I'd love to go to India. Um, you know, sometime this year, if 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 that's all possible, we'll see. Inshallah. Yeah. Bumi, what about yourself? Any uh, comfort food or comfort item and and the first thing you'd like to do when this is all over? Um, comfort food. So I have taken on in my domesticity, um, <laughs> learning how to make all of the foods that my mom made when I was growing up because they never come out very good. And pre-pandemic, I just didn't have time to figure out why. And so I've been taking this time to figure out how to make all of my favorite foods that my mom has made and make them well. Um, my favorite right now is kitri with ghee. Mm. <laughs> Amazing. Every day. Amazing. <laughs> um, and the first thing I want to do after all this ends is I want to consensually hug all of my friends and family. <laughs> I just want to hug everybody. Yeah, as someone who's not a big hugger, I'm actually like, man, when can I hug people again? <laughs> so I feel that. Um, I also love the, the that you mentioned mo- like a mom's home cooking because I feel like uh, there's been a lot of recipe sharing and cooking kind of going on, but it's also funny in the South Asian circles. Like, obviously, we don't have recipes and we don't have. It's all like uh, a little of this and a little of that. So it's so interesting to then kind of try to hone in on that, right? My mom, I'll, I'll text her and I'll ask her for a recipe, and she'll say, "Just put some put some thurdal in the pot, turn it on for a few minutes, add some salt." Mom, how much salt? Yeah. <laughs> what is the water ratio? How much water do I add? And she's like, I don't know. You'll you'll know when you look at it. <laughs> I love that. I love that. Because it's so, I hear all the mainstream recipe sharing and I'm like, man, South Asians cannot do that. It's very much like, like even if you FaceTime, like I've been FaceTiming my mom and she's like, yeah, that looks done. And I'm like, I don't know how you know. Like, I, don't, I don't get it. <laughs> but I love that. I love that you're experimenting with that. Yeah. Um, Zulfikar, how about yourself? Uh, any kind of comfort food and and something that you're looking forward to doing? You know, my comfort food that I that I love making, and also just kind of like it's both a broad category and a specific one. So rajma masala is something that I love, absolutely love to make. And then broadly speaking, I really love beans and rice for for, mm. for some reason. It's so simple, but any, really any variety of beans and rice, you know, be it chana masala, rajma masala, or I'm like, my mouth is watering or, uh, <laughs> or, or even refried beans and like, whatever, like just give it yeah. to me. And I, I love it. And, um, I actually, I currently live in a co-op. So cooking has been an interesting dance, uh, mm-hmm. to put it in that category. Cause we all, we're all supposed to cook once a month so mm-hmm. and then some people just end up cooking a lot more and you know some, some people you know so it's been a little bit hard to sort of mm-hmm. get into the you know real like meat of the cook not meat because I'm, ve- I'm vegetarian but the real sort of cooking experience that I've been wanting to sort of like get into but I've been doing some rajma some channa some hummus some tabule like these are all foods that I that I want to carry with me and keep with me because these are the foods that I that I felt like I grew up with mm-hmm. so anything in that category as a comfort food and then in terms of what I want to do after this is over oh my goodness two big things have already been said so the travel and the hugging where would you travel to I would go back to Pakistan actually as well I would go back to Pakistan I would also just go out and 
I just want to go out and not feel like I have to dodge somebody coming towards me or that somebody mm-hmm. doesn't feel like they have to dodge me. Like, I think that's something I'm looking forward to is just walking down the street and relishing that I'm walking with other people down the street. I mean, it's such a simple thing, but like leaving my house now, it's been, it feels like life or death. And, and I, I would like to walk out of my house where that isn't there. <laughs> Yeah. So I echo all of you with those things. I think for me in the last few days, uh, New York has made it now mandatory to wear masks. I've been trying to avoid having to do that, but we made our own masks at home and I, I really miss making eye contact or smiling at people in the street Mm. because there's almost an inherent lack of, of personality that comes through when everyone's just wearing masks and not like averting their Mm. gaze. And, you know, and so I I actually really miss like just a smile or a smirk at a stranger Mm -hmm. almost in a way to be like, to, to create that connection in that moment. I really miss that. I can't believe that that's such a subtle thing that I took for granted before. Mm-hmm. But uh, it's very strange to live in a world where we're all, you know, covering our face um, and experiencing a lot of the things that folks have, have had to experience for a long time, the folks that, that had to, to wear masks for their own health, in it, you know, mm-hmm. for a long time. So, um, yeah, I just miss smiling at strangers. <laughs> I thought of that as you said that, Zulfikar. Um, But thank you all for sharing that. Thank you all for being on Crane Daisy. I, I think that this has been such a great discussion of of the arts, of your work, um, of this fun and the ways that this community is coming together. I just want to give you all a, a chance to plug your websites or your social media handles, where people can follow you. Um, and Ashok, if you can mention where people can find more information about the fund as well. Yeah, definitely. So it's it's theindiacenter.us is our website. And there's information on the fund, how to apply for it, and also how to give to it. So um, please visit that website. Thank you. And Pumi, how about yourself? Um, you can find me on Instagram, Patel Danceworks, all one word. I also have a website, pateldanceworks.org. Also on Facebook, Patel Danceworks. If you want to check out my personal Instagram, which is just like a lot of queer and trans people of color mental health resources, yes. I'm Boomy the Lion. <laughs> Wonderful. I can't wait to follow you. Yes. Yeah. And Zulfikar? You can find my work at www.zulfakaraliputo.org, not .com, because if you press .com, you go somewhere weird, um, but <laughs> definitely.org. Yes, and my Instagram is um, zulfakaraliputo as well. Um, and you can also follow Faluda Islam at Faluda underscore Islam. She's a little bit more shy, so her page is private, but zulfakaraliputo's is not, and that has pictures of art my art other people's art random stuff it's yeah there's you know no coherence to any of it so um wonderful thank you all so much um i really really appreciate it once again thank you all so much for being on korean daisy thank you thank you thank you for having us thanks very much thank you for listening to the latest episode of queering daisy if you enjoy this podcast please be sure to rate and subscribe on itunes to help us spread the word and to make sure you get the latest episodes right to your phone. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Queering Daisy. If you have any questions, comments, or feedback, please feel free to reach us on social media or drop us an email at queeringdaisy at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.